Gracious and loving God, we give you thanks this day for your word, a word for us from scripture that gives us a guide for us. May we continue to see your creative work in the, uh, in the words of scripture, but also in our lives and in the world around us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. This Sunday, as Loretta said, is the second of five sermons from the first book of the Bible. Last Sunday, our text was the familiar first chapter of Genesis, starting with the very first words of the Bible. And we heard them read in the voices of folks from our church community. God's creative handiwork was on full display in that text. God's creativity is at work throughout the book of Genesis, but it isn't always as clear as it was in last week's text. I've said this before, but being out in creation, I cannot help but see God as I consider the wonders of all that is around us. We don't have to look very hard at creation to get to know the creator. But even though it isn't obvious... In each of our texts in this series, we're going to see something of a creative God, a God who sees a path where we see none. This week's scripture lesson that Loretta just read for us is from Genesis chapter 18. We're sort of jumping right into their story with this text, so a little background about Abraham and Sarah might be helpful. When we first encounter them in scripture, their names are actually Abram and Sarai. And they're living a life of luxury in a place called Haran. They're surrounded by a large family. They were descendants of Noah and they were quite established. The society in which they were living, it it wasn't one that was following God though. And in fact, they had grown far from God. They were in Babylon. And polytheism was rampant. In fact, one ancient Near East historian that I read said that texts mentioned the name of at least 3,000 gods. Even accounting for the fact that some of those deities were given different names, the historian concludes that more than 300 distinct gods were being worshipped. Abram and Sarai and their parents before them worshipped these many gods and idols of their day. The approach was, it was basically one where people, especially people with power and money, would spread their bets among the various gods. We'd say they wanted to have all their bases covered. So you can imagine Abram's surprise when God appears to him and says, go. And Abram is comfortable, he's powerful, and at the age of 75, doesn't really need God or anyone else telling him to change his path. And yet, that's exactly what God does. The the inconvenience of God's call to Abram is more significant by the fact that God doesn't tell Abram where to go or what he's to do. If it wasn't enough for God to call Abram away from his present life, God tells Abram that he's to take his wife and go out to the land that God will at some point show him. Go to the land that God will show him. It's a wonder to me that Abram doesn't laugh at God at this point and turn the other way and look to his other gods. It's a wonder also that Sarai doesn't just let Abram go on his way. But something stirs within Abram and Sarai, and they go. 
They listen to God's message for them, a message louder than the wealth and position in society and louder than the many gods and idols and the complacency of their known lives. They listen to God's message for them and they start their journey. And when they go, God makes three promises to them in chapter 12. First, that Abram, whose name means exalted father, Abram, who hasn't had any kids, will have many descendants. God says that Abram will be a great nation. Second promise, that Abram and his descendants will inherit the land of Canaan. And third, that Abram and Sarai and their descendants will be a blessing to the world. So if you haven't caught on already, there's a major problem here with each of God's promises. Abram and Sarai have no children. These promises that God has made to Abram and Sarai, they they seem pretty impossible, especially for them to be the ancestors of a great nation. If you don't have any children, you can't be ancestors. So Abram and Sarai do listen to God and they do leave. With no planned destination, they go. I try to imagine Abram and Sarai when they get up and go. I wonder what drove them. Aside, of course, from the fact that God had told them to go. Was it hope, though? Or was it curiosity? Were they wanting to see whether there was another bet they needed to make? We we just don't really know. What we know is that they risked a lot and left a lot and gave up the comfort of their lives to follow God's instructions. Now, the text between chapter 12 and chapter 18 It's intensely rich. I I say this a lot, but anyone who thinks the Bible is boring should try reading the Bible and reading these chapters in particular. Abram and his companions that are traveling with him, they're avoiding peril. They're even coming up with their own ways to fulfill God's promises. You see, after years, Abram and Sarai still do not conceive a child. So they come up with a plan for Abram to have a child, with Sarai's servant, Hagar. Hagar gives birth to a child, Ishmael, and they think they've solved the problem. But God basically then says in chapter 17 that this isn't what God meant. Here's exactly what God says. As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall give rise to nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Here we go again with this promise. And God, it's like, is needing to be clear, more clear. It sounds great, right? But Abraham knows that his wife is 90 years old. And he's nearly a hundred years old. The text says that Abraham reacted as you might think he would. Abraham fell on his face and laughed. Abraham then tries to argue about it with God just a little bit more. Abraham tells God that he's solved the whole offspring problem. He's got Ishmael. But God continues to reject this. God says, no, but your wife Sarah shall bear you a son. And you shall name him Isaac. It's like God has to get really clear. Now, also, 
This is about 25 years after that initial promise, the promise that was made when Abram and Sarai were already, our text says, advanced in age. And and here God goes again. And not only that, but this is also, this is important, this is when God changes Abram's name. Remember, Abram means exalted father, and he changes his name to Abraham, which means father of many. It seems that God is the one who's doubling down. That's how we get to chapter 18. Chapter 18 opens with a a scene that's actually kind of easy to imagine. It's like a scene right out of a movie. Abraham, Abraham is sitting in the shade during the hottest time of the day. He's resting and not doing much when some strangers approach, three men. He sees them coming, and he gets up and takes his hundred-year-old legs, and the text says that he runs to them. Now, Abraham doesn't know these men. They're strangers in every sense of the word. And Abraham radically seeks a transformation of these men from strangers to guests. Think about that for a moment. Abraham knows that his actions, his acts of hospitality, can change the status of these other men. His simple acts of hospitality can transform. Abraham doesn't just offer a morsel of food, something to tide them over. No, he throws a party. He throws a feast for these three guests. He has his servants prepare a calf, and he asks his wife to bake cakes. Abraham, he goes all out in his effort to transform the lives and even the status of these strangers. This has become a part of Abraham's identity. His very soul is one that must act in love toward others, even the others he doesn't know, the others have no ability, who have no ability to compel him to be hospitable to them. Abraham opens his doors to these strangers, strangers among whom it turns out God is standing. And once again, once again, the promise comes. When this lavish meal has been finished, one of the guests, the one who turns out to be the God of Abraham, the God who has made the promises to Abraham, this guest asks Abraham, where's your wife? Before before Sarah comes out of the tent, the guest says again that Sarah's going to have a son. Sarah's listening in on the conversation. She hasn't entered the room yet. She's got ears like my mother's that somehow heard every conversation from the kitchen. Sarah hears this tired promise, and she laughs. She laughs just like Abraham laughed, I told you in the previous chapter. And and God asks Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Why did she say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? She's heard this promise for so long. She's heard it, and she's lived with it, and she's probably even believed it for a time. But there comes a point where all you can do is stop and laugh, not 
not the laughter of something funny, but maybe the laughter that more resembles anxiety and ridiculousness, or the laughter of nerves and unease. But whatever it is, yeah, Sarah laughs. And she gets into a little bit of trouble for it. You'll notice in chapter 17, like I said, that Abraham falls on his face laughing. And he doesn't get rebuked by God. But Sarah chuckles from the kitchen and gets called out. And God seems to know exactly why she's laughing. Because then God asks Abraham and Sarah a question. A question that I've been asking a lot lately. But really a question that God is asking me and you and Abraham and Sarah and a question that God has asked ever since creation. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Is anything impossible for God? Is anything too extravagant for God? No matter how you ask the question, no matter the words, Sarah answers the question in that laughter. I'm pretty convinced that at this point, after they've literally walked away from everything and spent a long 25 years waiting and even straining their marriage by having Abraham conceive a child with Sarah's servant, at this point when he's 100 years old and she's so far being able to have a child, so far beyond being able to have a child, I'm pretty convinced that they've reached the point where the only thing they can do is laugh. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Yes, it's the honest answer in the laughter. It's the honest answer when we face a world that we don't understand. It's the honest answer when we read the news and don't know how to respond. It's the honest answer when we wish the news of protests would die down and go away. It's the honest answer when we want to ignore the suffering of others. It's the honest answer because we can't envision how God will bring about a different solution, right? How can God possibly fix this world in which we're living today? And so we laugh. Our laughter takes a variety of forms today. For some, our laughter happens when we click and share a post on Facebook, maybe one that we know we shouldn't post. Our laughter happens when we distance ourselves from the problems of white supremacy and systemic racism because we don't see a solution and we certainly don't see how we can be part of the solution or even part of the problem. Or maybe our laughter happens when we deny that there are any problems, especially perhaps in our own neighborhood or when we look at the problems of our own lives that seem more real. And so we laugh. We laugh and God looks back at us and asks us the question, is there anything too wonderful for the Lord? You see, when you open the door of hospitality to God, when you invite God into your life, your context becomes disrupted. How you see the world necessarily changes. The stranger becomes the guest. And the guest 
looks you in the eyes, and makes promises of a future. A future that will be the future that God intends it to be. God invites us to be part of God's creative work. God's creative work of doing what we might think is impossible. And this is where life gets interesting. God isn't asking you and me to do God's work. God is asking you and me to do the simple acts, the human acts. The acts like Abraham and Sarah extending hospitality, opening their doors to these strangers, taking risks. And when we do that, when we set aside our apprehensions and our resistance and seek to follow God, it is our creative God the one at whom Abraham and Sarah laugh, it is our, our creative God who gets the last laugh. It is God and God alone who was able to bring that boy Isaac, the boy whose very name is Laughter. God tells them, name your child Isaac. And it is God who brings Isaac into the world. When God's promise of peace in God's creation becomes too much for us to conceptualize, we need to get back to the basics and seek to understand who God is and how we can follow God. And then we need to let God be God. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? So friends, this is the God we follow today. This is the God in whom we are called to trust, the God who has guided prophets throughout the ages, the God who became human in Christ Jesus and remains with us even as we wrestle with a pandemic and the fears of the present world and the conflict that remains with us as we seek to learn and examine and listen and grow. You see, we can laugh at God's promises. But even when we laugh and try to turn from God, may we be reminded that God is present, that God is faithful, that God remains with us, and may we be constantly looking for God's guidance in our lives and looking to Scripture through prayer and with the help and nurture of the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.